Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies. Written by Dr. Jeffrey A. Robinson and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. Sometime during the night I fell asleep. About dawn an attendant rolled a cart full of food past me and the rattling plates and glasses woke me. I stood, rubbed sleep from my eyes, and looked around. Dr. Wilkes was working behind the nurse's station, filling out paperwork. She smiled as she noticed me. Did you have a nice sleep, Dr. Crawford? Uh, I guess so, I said, stretching. How long was I out? She glanced at her watch. About three hours. Has there been any change? I asked. His temperature has begun to drop, and he's resting more peacefully, but... He's not out of danger yet. She put down her pen and turned toward me. Her eyes bore the weariness of a long night shift. Why don't you go back to your hotel, she suggested. You've got to be exhausted, and you won't help your brother by killing yourself. Leave your number with admissions downstairs, and we'll call if there's a change in his condition. She added, I'm going to be leaving myself as soon as I turn over these charts to the day shift attending physician. I nodded and slowly picked up my bag. I didn't remember it being so heavy. The light from the sunrise which glared through the windows was painfully bright, and I squinted at its many reflections off the shiny chrome all around the room. A tiny bell announced the arrival of the elevator, and the doors drew back inviting me to leave. At the admissions desk, the clerk gave me directions to a nearby hotel. I found it and checked in, unpacked, and ordered food from room service. While I waited for my meal, I took a badly needed shower and shaved. Then, when the food finally arrived, I ate, hardly noticing the food. Afterwards, I called the hospital and left my phone number with admissions. Lastly, I called the States to tell my wife that I'd arrived safely. With some difficulty, I told her about James' condition. By the time I finished, it was nearly 10 a.m. local time, and I chose to lie down for a short nap. I fell asleep almost immediately and slept without dreams, until the phone woke me. As I woke, the unfamiliar surroundings left me confused and disoriented. It took a moment to remember where I was. As I lifted the phone off the cradle, I noticed the clock on the nightstand by the bed. It read 9 p.m. I'd lost the whole day due to jet lag. Hello, I said. Dr. Crawford? asked a familiar voice. This is Dr. Wilkes. I'm calling to let you know there's been a change in your brother's condition. I held my breath, half expecting the worst news. His fever's broken, she continued, and he's awake and lucid. I think he's beaten the infection, and he's going to make it. A wave of relief washed over me. You're sure? I asked, as all weariness vanished. Could I... can I come over now? I asked realizing I'd missed normal visiting hours once again. Sure, she replied. I'll tell the admissions clerk to let you write up. I just got back on duty myself, and I'll meet you here. Thanks, I said and hung up. Then I hurriedly changed my clothes and drove back to the hospital. As I entered James' room, I found him sitting upright, eating hospital food as fast as he could shovel it into his mouth. He paused and looked up at me with wonder and surprise and greeted me with his mouth full of food. Rob! He shouted with a broad smile, spreading across his face. Swallowing awkwardly, he said, 
For God's sake, I thought you were part of my dreams. I'm glad you're back. Did you really come all the way from New York just for me? I sure did, Jimmy. I was grinning so hard my cheeks hurt, and I hurried over to him to give him a gentle hug. His response, however, was anything but gentle. His bear hug took my breath away, and he pounded me on the back as he told me what a good big brother I was. When he finally released me, I took a seat beside him as he resumed his meal. The sound of the knock behind me made me turn, and I discovered Dr. Wilkes standing in the doorway. Quite a spectacular recovery, wouldn't you say, Dr. Crawford? Uh, yes, I'm amazed, I said. I take it this isn't usual. By no means, she said. I'm told he woke up about an hour before my shift, complaining only about acute hunger. She gestured at his unhindered display of eating. You should know that this is his third full meal since he woke, she grinned. I told him to take it easy for a few days and recommended a bland diet, but after he inhaled what I ordered and claimed he was still starving, I let him have whatever he wanted. While he ate, I examined James more closely. His eyes were clear without any sign of redness. While he was thin, as one would expect after days of fever, his color was excellent, and if his appetite was any indication, he was well on his way back to normal health. If you don't mind, James, said Dr. Wilkes, I just want to take your vitals for my charts. Then I'll leave you two alone. James continued to eat while Dr. Wilkes took his pulse and blood pressure. She also took a vial of blood for tests. As he finished the last of his meal, Dr. Wilkes was barely able to stick a thermometer in his mouth. Jimmy sat silently and obediently, grinning like a Cheshire cat, until she took it out and read it. 37 Celsius, she announced. Perfect. James spread his arms comically as if expecting a claim and said, Well, there you go. Would you expect anything else of your little brother? Dr. Wilkes shook her head in disbelief and left the room. James pushed the empty food cart away, settled back on his bed, and crossed his arms behind his head. His steel-gray eyes focused sharply at me. So you remember me being here last night? I asked. Absolutely, Rob. I remember every word. Well, I wasn't sure. You seemed a bit out of it. True, he said. I wasn't at my best, but I'm back, and better than ever. So, I asked. Can you remember what happened? He blinked. Of course, but I told you all that last night. Jimmy, last night you were delirious. You ranted on about magic shamans, immortals, and man-eating bats. James laughed in a thunderous roar that reminded me of his high school football days when he tried to outfight and outparty everyone around him. Well, then you weren't listening to me, bucko. I grimaced. He knew I hated it when he called me by that nickname. What I told you was I found the ancient shaman Wurumwadu, and he gave me the secret to Chukorpa, dream time. No, I replied. You told me you were searching for the Australian fountain of youth, but got stabbed by a short aborigine with a sharp tick instead, and nearly died of blood loss and infection. James' gaze didn't falter, but... Neither did his smile. If anything, he looked condescending. This was the way it always is with little brothers, I thought. They never do anything straightforward. Everything's always a contest of some sort. 
After a few seconds of silent staring, James said, I guess that's how you would interpret it, Rob, but he was Wurumwadu, and he did give me what I sought. What? I said, guffawing at him. You actually believe you met a thousand-year-old shaman with a secret to immortality? James smiled, nodding slowly. Now I was worried. Come on, Jimmy. Don't play with me this way. I know your fever was awfully high for a long time, but don't go bonkers on me. I'm not, Rob, he replied with uncharacteristic seriousness. Come here, I'll prove it. He reached over and started peeling the surgical tape to the bandage on his left arm. Oh, don't do that, Jimmy, I said. You'll just get it infected. You have to give it time to heal. Give what time to heal? he asked innocently, and he lifted off the gauze. I stared at his arm, stunned. While the inside of the bandage was red and bloody, there was no mark of an injury on his arm at all, not even a scar. I approached and examined his arm where the horrific wound had been the night before. At first I touched gently, and then I poked and prodded. There wasn't even a mark or blemish where the cut had been. I clearly remembered the brachioradialis muscle split and exposed to almost the bone, the full length of his forearm. No, Rob, you're not going crazy. You did see it. It was an awful wound and it almost killed me. But... But how? I stammered. I healed it. I didn't know I could at first, but my dreams kept showing me how. Unfortunately, I was fighting the dreams and almost died. I guess I had to get weak enough that I couldn't resist them anymore. And when I finally accepted the dreams, I learned what Wurumwadu gave me and how to use it. And then I healed myself and woke up. What do you mean? What did he give you? James sighed deeply once. Rob, you remember the story I told you last night about how the shaman cut himself and then me? You recall how he grabbed me by the arm with his wounded hand? I nodded mutely. What he gave me was his blood, or rather what was in it. He cut us both so his blood would mingle with mine. His blood? Yes, listen. It's hard to explain since not all of the things in the dreams translate well into words, but you're a doctor, so I'll try to put them in terms you'll understand. Consider the human genome. It changes over time. In some ways it evolves, in others it diverges. Over generations, the genetic code decays. No, I said, interrupting. There's no evidence that evolution has stopped. It's carried us quite far along. Who's to say it's not still advancing the species? James glared. Rob, I don't want to argue. Just listen, or I won't bother with explanations at all. Look, the Aborigines descended from people who were actually quite advanced. They learned that the human genome was incomplete and, well, they figured out how to finish it and make man into what he needed to become or what he was once, long, long ago. I'm still not sure which. In any event, a component of the shaman's blood contained missing pieces of DNA that we don't have anymore. It activates a lot of those gene sequences your fellow scientists claim aren't used anymore. The only reason they're inactive is that man's DNA has degraded over millennia. Entropy has corrupted the genetic design so much that some essential pieces are missing, leaving other sections inactive. 
Whatever was in the shaman's blood mixed with mine and infected me. I almost died. But the virus, or agent, or long-chain protein fragments altered selective pieces of my own DNA and, well, they changed me. I frowned and glared. That's impossible, I said. Hey, bucko, I'm living proof. It is possible. I gritted my teeth involuntarily until I realized he was doing it deliberately again. Look, he said, life is special in this universe, where the rest of reality is subject to entropy so that everything runs down and decays. Life renews and opposes entropy and the death of the entire universe. Life is, by its nature, negentropic. Yeah, I said. So, and where do you get off throwing all this scientific jargon around? One thing I had never received before was a science lecture from my kid brother. After all, I was the one who'd gone through college. He'd dropped out after only one semester and gone off to party for the rest of his life. This is what I learned from my dreams. It's what Wurumwadu was trying to tell me while I was sick— Think, Rob, he said now, seemingly sincere. What does negative entropy really mean? While everything else in the universe gradually decays from order to disorder, life creates order from chaos. It reverses the flow of the whole universe in every cell of everything that lives. So, I asked again, what of it? This negative entropy, as you call it, is localized. The universe will still die anyway. And what does all this have to do with your miraculous recovery? James nodded. What Wurumwadu gave me was the missing piece of the human genome that we need to become what we were meant to be. Most life barely generates enough negative entropy to replicate itself. However, the more complex life is, the stronger the negative entropy it generates. That's why higher life forms live longer. Most people's damaged DNA, however, doesn't enable them to be fully negentropic. What negative entropy human cells do create is insufficient, and they eventually decay over time. People grow old, age, and die. What I've been given fixes the genetic code and allows me to do more, far more. I squinted at James, suddenly suspicious. What? You have more tricks than miracle healing? Spontaneous remission and tissue generation aside... I was now worried that James' mind was seriously affected. Oh, yes, replied James. If I understand it correctly, I've gained much more than mere control over my body. What do you mean? I asked, stalling for time and hoping that Dr. Wilkes would return. Well, James said, it's not completely clear, though Wurumwadu tried to explain it to me. You see, Fully negentropic life forms aren't bound by some of the seemingly immutable laws of physics. That's what the Aborigines mean by dream time. Such beings can exist outside the normal flow of time and travel against that flow, if they want. Beings enabled with this missing fragment of the human genome can effectively alter the flow of time. That's what reversing entropy ultimately means, reversing the flow of the universe. If I want, I could grow younger, or go forward, or back in time. So, you're some kind of god or superman now, I asked. Well, he said, chuckling, I guess so. Though it's really not being superhuman, it's what being human was truly intended to mean. You mean, man was made this way? 
Are you turning into a creationist now? I asked. For the first time, James paused and looked puzzled. That's a good question, he said. That's something Wurumwadu didn't explain. I guess I'll need to go check that out. And with that, he yanked the IV out of his arm, threw back the bedsheets, and jumped out of bed. I started to panic and headed for the door. James, however, simply gestured with his hand, and the door to the room slammed itself shut. I grabbed the handle and tugged on it, but it wouldn't budge. Oh, for God's sake, stop, said James. Leave the damn door alone and help me find my clothes. Dumbfounded, I stood looking at him blankly for a few seconds. James, however, said, Ah, they don't have them here. They must have removed them at the Cooberpedi. Well, I should be able to go get them, and... He stopped again and thought for a moment. Come to think of it, they wouldn't be in very good shape. I do recall smearing them with guano and bleeding all over them. Then an odd grin appeared on his face. Well, I might as well give it a try sooner or later. He winked at me and said, Be patient, Rob. I'll be right back. He squinted his eyes and clenched his fists, and for a moment nothing happened. And then, before I could say anything, his image shimmered and a bright glow appeared around him. And with a soundless flash of light, he vanished. I blinked and rubbed my eyes. Getting down on my hands and knees, I looked under the hospital bed. Returning to the door, I tugged on it, but it was still jammed. There was another silent explosion of light, and I heard a familiar chuckle behind me. I turned to find James standing in a pressed linen suit with a matching wide-brim hat and glossy black band. His outfit was off-white, somewhere between a soft cream and a light beige. Somehow, he seemed far healthier than a moment before and seemed to have gained some bulk. He no longer appeared gaunt, and he had a deep tan. In his hand, he held a long, dark wooden cane with a large, ornately engraved gold knob on its end. Smiling, he posed in a motionless swagger. So, what do you think? he prompted. I was speechless. Wrestling to collect my wits, I finally managed an inarticulate, Where did you get those? Pirouetting slowly, he said, These? And then lowered his arms and struck a pose as he thumbed his hat. 1852 Brisbane on the Gold Coast. It took me a while to figure it out, but time sliding is actually pretty easy once you get the hang of it. To be honest, I've been gone several subjective months since I left you here. When I first shifted away from here, I really did intend to return right away, but then I realized I had all the time in the world and could return to this instant whenever I wished. Still, I knew you'd be distressed, so I brought you a gift. Reaching into his coat pocket, he pulled out a flask. It was the size of a small flask that would contain alcohol. It was made of green glass and had an ornate silver stopper. This is for you. It's a sample of my blood and contains what I received in that grotto in Kanchu Gorge. Analyze it, study it, but don't use it. I've learned that it will kill most people who try. If their DNA has degraded too far, they'll die. That's why the shamans give it out so rarely. Oh, by the way, I've found that there are other immortals besides shamans. Actually, there are quite a few of us dreamwalkers. Most of them, however, hang out in the remote past— I guess there are fewer people in those time periods to bother them. You see, dreamwalkers can go anywhere they want in dream time, 
Touching the brim of his hat, he winked and said, However, I like the Gold Coast, especially back in the mid-1800s. Always have. Interesting people, interesting times. I just stood there, staring at the vial in James's hand, wondering if it was really what he claimed it to be. Shaking the flask at me, he said, Go ahead, Rob, take it. It'll give you something to think about while I'm gone. You have a lot of work to do. Reaching out, I carefully took the glass tube. Examining it, I found it did in fact seem to contain about 20 or 30 cc's of fluid. While it might be blood, it looked black through the colored bottle. Then I realized what James had just said and sputtered, While you're gone? Wait, what do you mean? Where are you going? Back to Brisbane, 1852. One of these days, I'll have to take you there. You'd love it. Smiling, he tapped the rim of his hat with the gold knob on the end of his cane, and then he gestured with it across the room. The nearby door that had been stuck shut before slowly drifted open without a sound. Be good, bucko. I'll see you at Christmas. Winking, he vanished as quickly as popping a soap bubble. A single curl of mist like a warm breath on a cold day drifted up from the place where he had been standing a moment before, and then it faded and was gone as well. Looking about, I was quite unable to accept what had just happened. Then terror washed over me as I realized I had no credible way to explain his absence to Dr. Wilkes. As I stepped out into the hall, I wondered if I should try to explain what happened to her, even as I realized that they would think me mad. Remembering the vial in my hand, I stuffed it into a pocket and hurried down the elevator. By the time I reached the first floor of the hospital, I was already planning the initial tests I'd conduct on James's blood sample and began making a mental list of researchers that I could really trust. James was right. I did have a lot of work to do. Thank you for listening. We love our listeners, fans, and patrons. If you loved what you heard, please like and subscribe to our audio anthology and consider visiting our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash Melissa Del Toro voiceover, which you can find listed in the show notes for this episode.